Hello everyone, this is Gianni Russo, and we are broadcasting through Hollywood Godfather Podcast. Welcome all of you again. Pat Picciarelli's with us. Megan's with us. Pat, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, I think uh, the audience would lo- like to know your uh, origins. They all know you from The Godfather, but they don't know much else. And uh, even at your earliest age, uh, you, you had rather an interesting life. So uh, why don't you share some of that with us? Well, you know, I'm gonna, that's, I mean, my early years are so sensitive to me. And I, I do want to share that because most people think I, you know, I dropped out of a tree in 25 and made The Godfather. But in 1949, I had one of the greatest experiences in the world. And as you start to, the story unfolds, you'll wonder why I think it's the greatest, because it was the foundation that made me who I am today. I was uh, fortunately and unfortunately stricken with polio in 1949. And at that time, it was a virus that was totally unknown to most of the world. and. Uh, I didn't know what was happening to me at the age of seven years old. And my mother took me to a clinic and two days later, they came with an ambulance and picked me up and took me to a state hospital in New York called Bellevue, where I spent five of the next years of my life, which are very informative years for most kids watching television and Cowboy. I remember Howdy Doody and Cowboys and Indians and I was confined to a 20 bed ward for five years and the whole left side of my body, I had no mobility at all. Okay, so while you were there, uh, I mean, it's it's hard for uh, people to understand those years and how the illness struck this country. Everybody was scared to death that their kids were gonna get this and there was no rhyme or reason why anybody got this. You were just, uh, you know, it was the uh, luck of the draw that, that, that people got sick. But you wound up in a place that was completely foreign to you, separated from your family, who you didn't see for the next five years, no television, no radio. You had one little window that you could look out of, and that was basically your world, right? Oh, that was my world. And, and you know, it's fortunate that you mentioned what one item that I did get, which was interesting, and uh, a Dolores Barone, who was a uh, candy striper when I first got to the hospital, and she was a relative of Carlo Gambino, fortunately. She brought me a transistor radio, which totally changed my life at that time. Because uh, once I got that radio, I felt I had a connection to the outside world. And it was December 12th, which was my birthday, and I happened to share it with Frank Sinatra. And I remember it was WNEW, and all day long, they were talking about Frank Sinatra, the Italian-American from Hoboken, and his father was a fireman, and his mother, you know, so many things that connected to me that it gave me some kind of connection to the outside world, and it gave me hope to maybe I can get out of here, and now that I have this uh, idol, basically, to look up to, and during the, during the 40s and 50s, I mean, there was nobody bigger in the world as a superstar than Sinatra. And with that, I, I was able to get some kind of hope because it was so depressing being there for so long. I mean, for the first few months, all I did was cry during the day, the night, and whatever, because as you pointed out, there was nothing to do. I was told. So, okay, so, no. so this radio was basically your friend. Yeah, this radio became everything to me. And so for. Let, 
Okay, let, let me ask you this then. What about the other kids in the ward? You didn't like pal up with them? You weren't friendly with them? I was very afraid, as most of us were, and uh, we were highly contagious, and most of them were not mobile. And, you know, it wasn't like you were gonna go play games. You know, my whole left side of my body didn't move at all. And I was bedridden, and I used bedpans and everything for the first year, 14 months, I didn't move. Then they encouraged us, once they saw we were getting some strength, that they would not bring you a bedpan any longer. They would not assist you in any way. They wanted you to care for yourself. And we used to call it crawling or dragging. So we'd manage to get out of bed with any, and fortunately I had the right side of my body, my leg and arm that was strong enough to be able to do that. Some people couldn't even do that. But with that, I was so encouraged. Well, we started crawling around and they had uh, rails that we can grab onto and elevate yourself. And that I used to drag myself to, to the bathroom and whatever, and not having any urgency of time to do anything, I took my time and basically was working out on these bars unbeknownst to what I was doing to build the strength. And Tell us about the bicycle tires. Oh, the tires were amazing. Uh, they came up with this idea, whereas, it, which today, as I studied it many years after that, it was a form of dynamic tension. So they came and they measured my arm length and my leg length to the crib that I was in, and they would bring me bicycle tubes, like a 32-inch wheel or a 36-inch wheel, and the idea was to stretch the, the bicycle tube out as long as you can hold it. So me being religious, I would hold it and maybe say a rosary and then let it go. And that is a form of dynamic tension because I had to build elasticity muscles. Because what happened to me, all my inner joints were deformed. The sockets grew, but the balls didn't. So what I needed to do, as the doctor explained to me, he broke a pencil, a regular wooden pencil, and he sat down and he put rubber bands around it. And then the pencil would function, would bend, stay straight. He said, this is what you need to do. You need to build elasticity muscles. And I mean, a kid at seven years old, what do you know about the, the, muscle, the muscles in your body, elasticity muscles, this muscle? But that little example made me so diligent of doing this exercise for hours and hours and a day at a time, where a lot of kids just gave up. And was that for the side of your body that wasn't Yeah, just the left well? side. It was okay. just the left side of Got my it. body. And most of the kids were just totally depressed, and they gave up. And, you know, if, if you went to therapy, which I didn't have to go because my lungs and everything else were working, it was the elasticity muscles that they needed me to build over the years to, like, uh, subconsciously, I, I tense my elasticity muscles on the left side of my body to keep my shoulder in place, to keep my hip in place, even to today. So it's just like learning to walk all over again as an infant. Until you get that confidence to do that, that's what I did. But a lot of the other kids, they just expired, man. So if you were going to uh, therapy, and if you died before therapy, then when we were all in therapy, who, who went, they would leave the room. Me, they would just draw the curtains around my bed. We had curtains around every bed on a pipe along the ceiling, so it would give you privacy when they, they needed to examine you or whatever. 
So I would hear this gurney come in, and for some reason they never oiled the wheel of this gurney. Every time this gurney was coming in, it was from the morgue to pick up somebody. And then if you died at night, they'd wait for all of us to go to sleep and do the same thing. So it was like a very morbid situation. So to answer your first question, Pat, nobody really wanted to become friends with anybody. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had a similar experience uh, in, in Vietnam. You know, you don't want to make friends because you don't want to lose the friends you make. Right. And, you know, and uh, you, you, you tend to be a loner uh, because it, it helps your head. You know, you, you don't want to see uh, your friend not there in the morning anymore. So best thing to do is not introduce yourself to begin with. Yeah, and mine, mine, was, mine was more fear to be yeah. honest with you. I wasn't, that, I wasn't intelligent enough or, or old enough to experience losing a friend or knowing what that would be. So yeah. to me, it was just, let me stay alone. I, was a, I became a clean freak. I was always washing because they told me about germs. But this yeah. was a virus that was in my body. I couldn't wash it away. But uh, all of this has become a part of my life and my hygiene because it was so inbreded, you know, of bacteria and all of this stuff all my life and uh, it, it was an amazing experience and then as I mentioned Dolores Barone Dolores Barone came up with these these great ideas as I matured to give me more courage inspire me I mean she was the lady when she left would bring me the extra jello from the cart or say goodnight to me she became my mother my best friend the only person I, I waited for Describe her to the listeners. Well, Dolores, when she was younger, I mean, um, 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 she reminded me, for most of the listeners, she reminded me of, of Annette Funicello. She had this beautiful auburn hair and a bust bigger than my grandmother. And I thought nobody had a bust <laughs> bigger than my grandmother. <laughs> and I was totally in love immediately. Oh, my gosh. And uh, But I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's interesting, and it's, it's, it may sound... Uh, um, what's the word I'm trying to describe myself politely about? Perverted. That uh, why well, you're I, a typical horny young man just getting in, into puberty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By that time you're nine, ten years old. The, the the juices are starting to flow. And here's how how old was Dolores? Dolores was sixteen at the time. I remember that. Oh, she's an old lady. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then then as a, as the years progressed, she became my floor nurse, which was great. And because I had her there. For me, as, as I, I really felt, you know, we'd, we'd pray together. She had a little office, as she, uh, most nurses did when they came on, that she did a book work. And I'd crawl over there every night. I was like a dog waiting outside to ask to be to, into, invited into the room. And it was because of her, actually, that I got more strength and built up my body because I didn't want, you know, I was like a, a romantic thing subconsciously in my mind. I wanted to not be this weak kid for this wonderful girl that I thought I was going to ride away on a white horse <laughs> up, up the East Side River. But and she had a she uh, invented a a pretty good way uh, to uh, uh, give you physical therapy, as I recall. Oh yeah, I mean, her, I mean, what she she antagonized me, yeah, in, in a way that was like unbelievable for any kid at you know ten, eleven, twelve years of age. 
when he realized that thing is just not for peeing. But, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> Megan, do you have any questions about that? No. You can jump in any time you want there, Megan. <laughs> and she's sitting there like in shock. But No. Well, wait just, till she hears what you're going to say now. You never know where this is going. This oh, time. I think yeah, I do. I know where it's going. I know where it's going, too. <laughs> so the interesting thing, she would invite me into her office and... She started by just unbuttoning one button of her uniform, which I'm telling you, I mean, this girl was voluptuous. And now you can imagine me. And I'm sitting across the room on a chair, very, you know, polite, you know, and I'm like a doctor, I'm a kid visiting his doctor, not just a nurse, because she did inspire me, did take care of me, and I totally respected her. I wasn't looking at her in any other way that I would know anyway in a different way as a girlfriend. I never had a girlfriend. But this was something that I realized I was so attracted to, meaning her boobs. And uh, she boob started- Boob therapy. Uh, boob therapy, that's exactly right. I'm gonna teach that in different hospitals I visit. Yeah, yeah, they don't know what they're missing. I need boobs though, to do that. There anyway, uh, so with that, she started encouraging me and enticing me and with that, through the months of therapy, she got me to walk towards her for different rewards. <laughs> and what were those rewards? Oh, yes, wow. Gianni, what were those explain. rewards? Explain. I think everybody is. No, I can't, I can't explain. This is radio, <laughs> I'm right? Kidding. Okay, no, I'm you know, saying. We, we, you know, we, no, you, I mean, it was a thing where any, any, I mean, any grown man would run across the room for her. But, and, but she did it in such a stylish way. And anything, I mean, this, we're not talking about something that happened over days or weeks or months. This was years she stretched it out because she was watching my mobility. She was watching that I was getting stronger. My left side was really getting mobile. I didn't have the, the strength that I did on my right side. And I still wasn't walking straight up. And I'm there already like four years. And, but with what she was doing, it gave me the confidence not to rely on my right side so much and it was this one night that she said to me, walk to me. I said, what do you mean walk to you? She says, I know you want to touch these. I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she says, it's up to you, just walk over here. Why don't they teach here. this in uh, medical school? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't at first again, it wasn't that I could just walk to her but I was getting stronger and she would not let me like, you know, do, do a step and then touch the desk or do this. You had to walk to her eventually. And eventually I did walk over to her and I, I touched these marvelous things and I've been touching those marvelous things for <laughs> the last 70 years. <laughs> But, but that got you walking, didn't it? Yeah, very creative it, it, form of physical therapy there. Huh? It totally, yeah. it totally got me walking, and you know, I, I, you know, so many times I could tear up thinking about her because I don't know if I would have got out of there without her, because you know, if I didn't have the radio, I think I would have been just like everybody else laying in those beds. They had no will. They had no will. Well, to it, it, you, you, you kept your sanity and you lived your life through radio drama and Amos and Andy and oh, all these Goldberg, shows. Goldberg. The, I listened to every show. Because again, what did sleep mean? I was there. I wasn't going anywhere. So yeah. as long as the radio was on, I was listening to it. And uh, thank God for the radio. Thank God for Dolores Barone. And uh, she encouraged me that when I finally got out of the hospital, 
I was, you know, just 12 years of age. What did you, what, so what happened? You aged out or you improved to the point where I, you could get out? I, I improved to the point where I could get out, but I don't think I would have gotten out if it wasn't for an incident that occurred in the ward that I was responsible for and nobody wanted to point a finger and nobody wanted to reveal what was going on in the hospital. So they moved me to another ward and I stayed there for observation. And then one day they just said, we're gonna release you. And I, I can't go into that incident publicly. Well, let's, let, let's just tell the, the listeners that that incident and, and other things that we're not gonna be talking about here, uh, you know, just for lack of time, because the book is huge, are in the book. Oh yeah, right. yeah. yeah. So whatever they wanna know that we, we're sort of skipping over, they can, they can read about it in the book. Yeah, but I, I, again, I think it's just a morally the right way to do it. If you're that interested, look, read about it in the book and you'll understand why I didn't want to bring it up all over the world on this broadcast. But as I said, from that, they let me out and I didn't want to go home again because I was so angry at my family. We got to get you a new chair. Your chair, <laughs> your chair keeps squeaking, Pat. But anyway. But, oh, that's me? Yeah, yeah. hello. <laughs> That's my chair? I didn't even know that. Yeah. So, I mean, our mics are so sensitive. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's insane. And that's why every once in a while you hear the ambulances passing and the, and the cars. That's the music of New York. Right. Uh, and and we York, mentioned to you that, you know, we're broadcasting from a pre-war building, which I love. I've been had the experience of being here for 64 years. And I really wanted to do that here so that... The people who are listening to us, wherever you are, it could be Oklahoma, it could be Hawaii, you're going to feel what we're feeling. You're going to smell the air in New York. You're going to hear the sounds in the night and bring you into our world every time you tune in. So getting back to our story, <laughs> I went back to my neighborhood and uh, I didn't want to go to my mother and father's house. I was really angry and bitter because me being a father of 11 children, I would never have my kids separated from me. I mean, I understand they quarantined me now, but at that time, there was nothing I could understand of why my mother and father are not here. Why aren't they here for my birthday? Why aren't they here for Christmas? Why didn't they visit me at least? Not realizing the quarantine was that bad. And if you Google this or whatever you do to find out information, most people of even the now generation like Megan, they don't realize how scary this was. And I mean, they closed every drinking fountain in the United States, every swimming pool. They thought it was being carried by the water. They didn't know. And fortunately then a, a, a genius, Dr. Jonas Salk, started experimenting and came up with the, the, the polio vaccine and, you know, Jonas Salk did that. I mean, it's the Salk vaccine. It was named after But you didn't get it, did you? No, I didn't get it. And I, I was so, because I, I, even then I was praying and every day. And I, I, my first bitterness was early on because I was already an altar boy going to church with my grandmother every day. And I was like six years old, you know, doing what was normal. And I was blaming God even for this. Why did you do this to me? Only to realize later on, now I know why he did it, and I thank him for it. And my religious belief, I mean, I haven't missed Mass ever, <laughs> never, ever. I could be anywhere, I get to church. And I, I guess that's a, another thing, I mean, who was ever listening to us, 
You have to believe in something. I don't care if it's a monkey, but have something other than yourself and believe in it and practice it. Because, I mean, spiritually, you got to be connected. You well, that be. got you through this. Oh, my God, yeah. And, and it still does to today. I mean, I, I pray every day. I have altars in every one of my houses. It's just something I'm, I don't profess it. But if it's a way of a release for me, I mean, it's, it's gotten me through things that we'll all experience through this podcast and my books and my motivational speaking. And that's why I really am inspired to tell the world. And that's why the, the interesting component that we have with Megan being here, we're compelling Megan to bring this message to the new generation and just don't take everything for granted or think you're entitled. You're not. And I think that's the message we're all trying to get across because there's too many people think they're entitled to something. You go out there and work. You want something, get it. I got everything I wanted, believe me. Not, I mean, not conventional, but <laughs> sometimes unconventional. You worked hard for it, though. But I, but I got there. But uh, the, my, first, my first job was, again, because of, you know, taking advantage of an affliction and getting it out there in a, in a, in a, a strange way I started selling ballpoint pens. They just came out, and I was sleeping at Magnati's Bakery, and during the day I had nothing to do. I made the bread, which was a part of a therapy because I was mixing 50-pound bags of flour, and they encouraged me to use the mixer. I said, I'd rather just you know, do it. And God led me to that. Well, whatever you believe led me to that. And I, here I was doing Again, dynamic tension, because if you mix dough, 50 pounds of dough, with you know the water and the lard I used to put into it, and mix this and keep adding it, the, the pulling and pushing with your upper body built my body. I still have muscle memory from those years. And that's how I gained my strength, and eventually my left side of my body started developing even faster than I wanted to, because I really wanted to take advantage of my affliction <laughs> and my ballpoint business, because I was getting ballpoint pens from a guy who, again, always I've always had people to help me, and this man was the first Jewish man I ever met in my life, Leo Rabinowitz, and he had a stationery store on Delancey Street, which was about 10 feet wide and 200 feet deep. And I always had a bit of a humor with me. So I walked in there and I saw ballpoint pens. He had a sign, ballpoint pens. I remember ink pens from going to school. So I walked in there and I had my gimp, you know. And actually I was pulling up my left arm a little bit too, so it looked worse than it was. <laughs> Exaggerated a little bit. Well, yeah, you know, I'm trying to, I figured this is a, a, an opportunity I gotta take advantage right. of. I like taking lemons and making lemonade out of them. Absolutely. I've done it all my life. So I approached him, which is a funny story. I said, Mr. Rabinowitz, my name is Johnny Russo. I said, I'd like to expand your business. And he looked down at me. You wanna do what? I said, I'm gonna expand your business. So he called his brother, Mar Morris, come here, come here. We got a guy who wants to expand our business. So, and he was humoring me, obviously, but I was getting a little pissed off, to be honest with you. But I said, can do you hear me out? He said, okay, let me hear. I said, you give me, give, I give nothing to nobody, give. <laughs> he wants me to give, Morris. I said, please, what I'm saying to you, my grandfather told me a long time ago, 
Look a man in the eye, shake his hand, and your word is your bond. Here's what I'd like. I'm going to say the word again. Give me 50 pence. Tomorrow I'll be back. If 20 are missing, I'll pay you for the 20. I always want to go to the street with 50 pence. You're here in a 10-foot wide, 200-foot length store. These people, you're depending on them walking to you. I'm going to bring your business all over New York. And I did. First, I started with Wall Street, with the bankers. That's when you were getting paid in paychecks. I mean, so what, what, so what did you do? Sell these on the street? No, what I did, I had this idea, because an old man, Mr. Pinto, was the bank of, like, uh, uh, the president of Pier, Pierce, Fenner, and Finch, and this bank. And I, he was always a good friend of my grandfather and everybody. So I used to go see him. And I saw all these girls filling envelopes, little brown envelopes, with money. He said, what's that? He said, we're making payroll for different companies who bank here. That's when everybody got paid in cash. You didn't have a check. You got paid in cash in the 40s and 50s. So I'm sitting there, and I'm saying, look all that cash. Should I rob them or just go sell the pens? <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> got to have, have some humor. Yeah. So anyway, I said, could you do me a favor? Could you give me the list of the banks? I mean, the companies when they get paid? He says, yeah, why? I said, I want to go visit them when they get paid. He says, why? I said, they're going to be flush with money. They'll be very generous. They see a little kid like me, I'll sell them a ballpoint pen. And then I expanded my res. I had a typewriter eraser that I asked Mr. Rabinowitz after a few t visits and I was selling the pens. I said, you know, I'm doing a lot of office work. Why don't you give me some, I, I, you know, they had these little wheels, a gray, I remember, gray wheel eraser and it had a little brush on it for the typewriters. So I took those two, and that's what I was doing. So after three or four months, I'd show up at the same places all the time. These women, are, and even kids, wouldn't even talk to me. They'd open their drawer and show me all the, the races they have in ballpoint pens. Oh they had a, a year's supply. Oh, my gosh. Time to expand your business. Yep, and that's exactly what I did. And how old were you at this time? I was uh, 12, going on 13. Wow. Quite a little creative businessman at that age. But I got creative because, like Pat said, I knew I was exhausting everything here. So, on on West Broadway, walking back down from Delancey Street, was the NR train, and it said Uptown, <laughs> and that Uptown hit me in the head. <laughs> That'd be better than downtown, right? Yeah. Hello. So I went Uptown, and I got off on 59th Street. Oh. And Fifth Avenue, right at Central Park. I never saw the park. It was like, I'm sitting there saying, who the hell cuts this grass? <laughs> you know, a couple hundred acres in the middle of New York. I loved it. So with that, I started hanging outside the Sherry Netherlands Hotel. Because everybody, I mean, I never saw people dressed like that. I mean, to me, everybody had their Sunday best on. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Right. I thought they were going to church every day. <laughs> But with that said, the doorman at the Sherry Netherlands, Mary Van Cleef and Arpel, they all became friends with me, who'd give me coffee, uh, hot chocolate, you know, in the morning. And so I would have my, my box, my cigar box full of the pens. I didn't bring the erasers up there. And every day, coming down 59th Street, heading east, this guy with his fedora on, and a guy or two with him all the time, he would stop 
dressed well, right? I'm dressed unbelievable, man. This man, impeccable. And he'd stop, and he'd touch my shoulder, my left shoulder, all the time. But I thought it was just the way of the guy, you know, saying hello. Right. And he said, "What do you got there, boy?" I said, "I've got ballpoint pens." He said, "You're kidding me." Is you selling these pens? I said, yeah. He said, how much you want for them? I said, anything you want to give me. So he gave me a dollar, never took a pen. Every day, I couldn't wait for this guy. Sometimes he'd give me five dollars. And this went on and on and on. And then eventually he said to me, what's your name? I said, Gianni. He said, oh, really? He says, what's your last name? I said, Russo. He said, who is Angelo Russo to you? Angelo Russo. I said, that's my great uncle. It's my, my grandfather's brother in Sicily. He says, really? He says, when's the last time you saw him? I saw him. He died in 47. What are you kidding me? So he really knew that I knew. So he looks at the guy with him, which I found out later on was his bodyguard, Blackie. He says, from now on, kid, you don't do this anymore, okay? I want you to work for me. I said, okay, what am I going to do? He said, I want you to do all my errands. I'll find stuff for you to do. I said, I said, I said Blackie, take that cigar box. I said, you ain't taking my cigar box. He gives me two $100 bills. That's like maybe 10000 today <laughs> in the 50s. He says, you know where the Waldorf story is? I said, yeah. He says, I want you to be there. You know in the lobby? I said, yeah. Sit under the clock at 11 o'clock every day until me or Blackie comes. Well, I got to say this to you. Unless I was traveling the world for him, I was at the Waldorf Astoria from that day early 50s to 1973 until he died. And who was he? Frank Costello. Tell everybody who he was. The, the, the people who don't know who Frank was. Right. Frank Costello, what, well, he was most known for the, uh, what was it, what was those, uh, what were those um, the Keith hearings. Keith Alford hearings. Because this is when they invented television. And they brought him in. He was a major, major man in organized crime. But a gentleman of a gentleman, and I say that now, and I've known him all these years. And when they brought him in, they wanted to put him on camera. This is how powerful he is. He said, I'll, I, I volunteered to come and have you ask me questions. I did not volunteer for you to exploit my likeness. He said, I'll let you photograph only my hands. And it became so intriguing, people would tune in to see this guy's Oh, my hands. gosh. But yeah, he you see his hands, but hear his voice. Man, that guy had a distinct voice. Oh, he voice. had a voice, yeah. very raspy, strong voice. Yeah, he, uh, he, he, he said something. He commanded a room. Oh, yeah. And you have to, you have to picture the, the scene with all these senators and congressmen and they're hanging on this guy's every word. He's an amazing guy. They were waiting for him. This was early on. I mean, most people don't even know Joe Valachi and all these other people, the rats of the world, that early on. So they were trying to break this thing called the mafia or organized crime, mm -hmm. which you know took many years later to do that. But he was the first, one of the first, a few people to testify. And from that, that notoriety became world known. But what he didn't want you to know, he was the boss of the Genovese family while Vito Genovese was doing a short time, a short bit in prison. So when Vito came out, he wanted his family back and wanted to be the head of his family. Frank couldn't wait for him to come out because 
they had another big plan. Costello became a multi-millionaire with Joe Kennedy during Prohibition. So the last thing he wanted to do was operate a family in New York. So, and have a target on his back. Yeah. So Maya Lansky, uh, a, a very close friend of mine, also in Chicago, Tony Accardo, and a, a few other heads of state around the world, around the world, they created what was known as the Syndicate. And in the movie The Godfather, when Hyman Roth, who was portraying Maya Lansky, said, we're going to be bigger than U.S. Steel. They weren't kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but that was like insanity. And here I am with this guy every day. Wow. It was crazy. You know, you had one run-in with him, though, that you, you may have uh, forgotten about uh, now. Uh, he'd always touch your left shoulder. And, right. and how did you find out what that meant? Oh, my God, that was terrible, actually, when I found that out. Because I was still going to church every day at that time. And uh, I came out of church, and the religious store is still there. Anybody that in New York area or visits New York, right next to Ferrara's is a Catholic store that was opened 100 years ago. So I know it that long. I used to go to DiPaolo's right across the street with my grandfather that's still there yet, the cheese shop. There's very few things that are still the same in Little Italy. So in that window of the religious store, I saw a hunchback with the Logorna. I mean, most people know the horns or the, the horn that people wear around their neck to, for the Maud. It's like the, for the Malachia, for, uh, for people who are not Italian. It was to, to keep off the, the evil spirits. So I saw this one. I never saw it before in my life. So I went in and I said, Joseph, what's this? He says, this is a, we just got him in there from Sicily. I said, how come there's a hunchback guy on, on, the, on the horn? He said, oh, the, the Sicilians are very superstitious. They feel touching a cripple gets luck. So I'm thinking, that's what this guy was doing to me. And I didn't know, because I knew him as you know, Frank Costello. I didn't know he was Sicilian. <laughs> but he changed his name because of the Irish to you know not to be associated and you yeah, know, Costello's an Irish name yeah yeah and he was running Tammany Hall with all the politicians that's why even the line in the Godfather because I had this conversation with Mario Mario Puzo I said how did you get these lines because a lot of these people I already knew yeah uh, uh, Puzo uh, wrote the book for those who are unaware oh yeah I'm sorry my, I take too much for granted. Mario Puzo wrote the book The Godfather which happens to be its 50th anniversary and on my desk, I believe in sevens and numerology, I have the 21st book. It's on my desk. It's got the dust cover on it. You wouldn't think it's even... <laughs> I can see it from where I'm sitting right now. It's, it's 50 years old. Yeah. And I said to him, how did you get all these nuances of all these guys? He said, well, that was the problem because a very good friend of mine, also I still know his son, and uh, the Pafacis, and uh, they owned Calavita, they're all legitimate people. He was the guy who was the oil, oil, olive oil king. So when they encompassed that Vito Genovese, I mean Vito uh, Corleone brought the olive oil in, that was about him. Then when they said in the, the sit-down meeting, you have all these politicians and, and everybody in your pocket, but you don't share them, that was Costello, because he had all of that. So he took bits and pieces. Carlo Gambino actually was the, the backdrop 
for the character right. that and he, a lot of people might not even know these these direct oh, I know. references. I know. That's what's so which is fascinating. Okay. So all these references were true references, and that's why uh, Carlo Gambino had the tomato garden in Brooklyn at his house, where he, where he got buried at it, basically. But did you confront? You wound up confronting Costello about him touching you, though. I mean, you, you're a 12 year old kid talking to them, arguably the most powerful gangster in the United States, and you're chewing him out. Yeah, you had some oh, guts yeah. there. Oh, what I did is I bought because now I'm taking the train uptown. And outside the train stations, as they still do now, they have all these vendors. So I saw these rabbit foots. They had rabbit foots, you know, turquoise and purple. So I was going to get the most ostentatious color I could find. And I did. I got a pink one, I think, or a, a sartreuse color. And I put it in my pocket. And I'm waiting for him to come. And here he comes. So he goes, like he always does, touches me on the shoulder. And this was before he gave me the job. Right. In fact, that, thank you for reminding me of this, Pat, because this is a great lead and That's why he knew that basically I had the Calhouns or the Balls, what everybody wants to know, that this kid is definitely Angelo Russo. This probably helped you, what you're about to tell the listeners, this probably helped you get this job with Costello. Yeah, it did. Now, that mean, you know, I didn't, and again, I thank you for reminding me because it's an important lesson, too, that you know you just don't cow down to people and let them use you. They have to respect you, and at that early age. So now he comes and he touches me, and I move my shoulder. He says, what's the matter with you? I said, don't touch me. He says, why? I said, I got you a gift. I pulled it out, it was a rabbit's foot. He said, what's this? I said, next time you need luck, stick this up your ass, don't touch me. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Costello. Mr. Costello. (laughs) Right. And Blackie was gonna make a move on me. He said, no, 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 no. Oh my gosh. And I said, I can't believe you did this to me. I thought you really liked me. He said, what, what do you, where, where'd you get this from? I said, I just saw the Logorn down at the religious store in Little Italy, and there's a hunchback on it. And they told me Sicilians, which I didn't even know you were Sicilian, touched cripples for luck. Is that what you were doing? And I caught, caught him off guard. He didn't know what to say, because that's what he was doing. Right. And that's how I got the job. Wow. <laughs> that worked out for you. No, but then he said, you got to be Angelos. Right. You know, There's got to be the connection gotta there. got to be part of that blood, because they were nuts. <laughs> I have to say, that's, my, it's, it's interesting, because my, my blood heritage is, is not really done. And even my sisters today, or my aunts, nobody ever wanted to be Sicilian. It was not vogue to be Sicilian in the 50s and 60s, because you had to be from the mafia. So they wanted to, and my, my Aunt Lily and my grandmother, Teresa, came from Naples. So that's how they put this whole thing together. But, but uh, I'm letting family secrets out. And the, <laughs> the good news is, and the bad news is, that there's not many of them around anymore mm. either. If I'm 76, forget about <laughs> it. <laughs> but, um, but, so you went on, so that was the start of your uh, uh, career for lack of a better term, with the mob. And without Costello, who knows what direction you would have gone in. Oh, my God. I don't know. I, mean, I was so bitter and so angry. And early on, as I, I, I knew I had to build up my body just for myself and my, my, the vanity and, and my, my ego. I wanted, I wanted to be, you know, and I, and I was enticed by these guys all my life. That's all I did. I mean, when you think of Mulberry Street in the 50s and 60s, 
the people who had money were the mob guys. Yeah, I was down there. I used to watch these guys with oh, the I cars and the did. women I, and the money. I mean, it was amazing. Well, well, let's talk about your background. Yeah, when, when you well, start, when you started in the police department, <laughs> he was on the well, other side of the tracks for me. <laughs> well, let's put it this way: uh, two things my father never wanted me to be was a restaurant owner because he was killing himself behind a stick there, or a cop. He's probably doing flip flops in his grave. I spent twenty years in a police department. Police. Uh, were not highly thought of. It was a corrupt department. I mean, I, I recall sitting in my father's uh, restaurant on a Sunday. Are you Back saying, then, excuse me, I heard something. I, I, I always believe. Are you saying the police are corrupt? You know, that's a rumor. <laughs> I, I, I heard that too, but I'll tell you where I got the rumor from. Uh, my father uh, had a bar restaurant. It was open seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I mean, and it was right down the block from the 5th Precinct. And on Sundays, once a month, my father would have me sitting at one of the, the booths. I was like eight years old with a shoebox full of envelopes stuffed with money. And the cops would come in during the course of the day on a, on a Sunday when the place was generally empty, uh, you know, early in the morning. Yeah, they go the to afternoon. church, yeah. And there would be names on the envelopes. Uh, cops in uniform, they'd come in and get their envelopes once a month. Yeah. I thought this was normal. No, that... I thought this, this was the way the job worked. But it was just a different time, different place. But so they... I was the guy that... that, that bribed the cops. I was eight years old. No, and, 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 and that's why I think, you know, uh, again, uh, Pat and I had come from the same cloth down there, and obviously he went right and I went left, but now here we are today. But he, as we said numerous times, I say it all the time, actually, there was nobody that could have written my memoirs other than you, because you were a part of it. You knew it. When I say something, you could relate to it. And oh, that's, yeah. that's what's so yeah. interesting about this story. And everybody that's reading it and the accolades we're getting about this book, I mean, we, we, we cannot influence today all these writers. I mean, the, the critics, the, the, the publishing critics, have only given us great accolades. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Now, every, every writer waits to get the review from Publishers Weekly. And for those of you who don't know what that is, in the business, uh, trade magazines review the books that are about to come out you generally get a review uh three to six months uh, ahead of time but the one the gold standard is publishers weekly and they wait till everybody else has reviewed the book and then they come in and if you get a good review from them uh it means so much as far as sales goes and how many copies of the books the distributors buy and uh i mean uh, with a lot of trepidation uh, i waited for that review and it was glowing, and the publisher flipped out. Our agent was thrilled. I think that's why we got our fifty thousand copy first run. It certainly helped, you know. Uh, and and you, I, I'll be the I'll be the novice in this. This is my first book, so when we found out the first run is going to be fifty thousand books, normally it's like ten or fifteen thousand. Am I right, Pat? Not even that. Sometimes that's high. Wow. So, yeah, and, and they, we just found out that now Australia who bought the rights of the book at the book fair in London in June, they increased theirs to 25,000. Like, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm just finding all this out. It's amazing. Wow. We have like 80,000 books hitting the street March 12th. That's like wow. insane. That's unreal. That's yeah, crazy. well, uh, like you said, this is your first book, but it's certainly not your last. Oh, no, no. I, I hope not. No, I mean, unless Pat dies, I ain't writing what I Oh, am. gosh. Uh, 
Well, God forbid that healthy, happens. So you, uh, you're in luck. You got to take care of yourself. Yeah, you guys both got to hit by a bus, and shame on me, right? <laughs> Megan, and listening to all what you've listened to, because uh, having you with us obviously is a, is a great compliment to Pat and I, and having you being the eyes and ears of the people out there. What questions do you have of this era that we just took you through that you think your, your friends or colleagues or mm-hmm. other people your age would want to know about? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that a lot having to do with the mob, the mafia, Frank Tostello itself, like I'm, I've heard about it and obviously I've seen The Godfather, I've read the book, I know, I know the surface of the stories, but I don't really know exactly what it means to be part of the mafia and how that works and exactly what Frank Costello's job was in that. Well, un- unfortunately, I mean, it, it the mob was created for uh, so many reasons. That's another whole show. Mm-hmm. And it was for a very honorable, honorable reason because we were being treated unfairly and they started this to try to protect the Italians. And I have to, that, was, that was 500 years ago. Not really. No, no, it was uh, exactly, I'll tell you exactly when it was, so, so you know, Pat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pat, it was 1892. <laughs> no, I mean, but there was the original mafia in, in Sicily was created right. right after the Middle Ages to protect right. uh, peasants against the government. Oh, yeah. Oh. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, I'm yeah. talking about the, the gangster portion. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Right, right. Well, actually, what happened was uh, Sicily was traded so many times that the landlords, this was really barbaric, the landlords who, the house that you were living in, they get, they farmed the land, they did that. The landlord actually had the privilege of sleeping with the bride before the groom, if he so choose. A lot of them, I mean, probably 99% of them wouldn't do it because they mm. know the family and their brothers would kill them. Yeah. But it did happen once or twice. And this is how this, whole society came to be because they were being just treated and shifted around by Spaniards, whoever at the time was occupying them. And then it got, you know, a little out of order when they started coming to an America. And even over there, I mean, it, uh, it, it got to be money and greed, basically. And unfortunately, it is where it is now. And that's why I always loved the line because I heard the line from so many people in the 50s and the 60s, talking about drugs. We can't get into drugs. Oh, so that was that was off limits? Well, they forbidden it. Okay. But, like Joe Bonanno and different other people, saw the money in it, and they went to it. And obviously, I would have to say, probably every family in the world deals in it directly or indirectly, because they knew they had to. And especially the younger kids, and that's why I think this whole thing of theirs, not mine, I, 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 mean, I always hear Gotti saying, this thing of ours, this thing of ours, and he was the one that betrayed it three different times. Oh. But with that said, <laughs> this thing of theirs that they held so dearly, they betrayed it themselves. It was crazy, unfortunately. Well, they wanted to make the money, but with the drugs came their downfall, so to speak. Oh, I yeah. mean, uh, it wasn't very popular in law enforcement circles. You know, you can pay off cops for gambling, vice, that's clean money. But when you come down to drugs, uh, that started to turn the tide against the mob. So they paid the price. 
Oh yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's start wrapping it up. Uh, talk talk about the book a bit, which you uh, started off by saying it's going to be out March twelfth. Yeah, March twelfth, all over the world. You can pre-buy it right now if you want to go to Amazon. Look for Hollywood Godfather. I mean. Yeah, Hollywood Godfather. <laughs> you got well, you know, oddly, I, I enough, right, yeah. oddly enough, uh, funny you should bring that up because there I are, have so many Godfathers in my life. <laughs> Hollywood there's, Godfather there's, by Gianni Russo and Pat Picciarelli. There's two books, Hollywood Godfather. I know, that's why. That's oh, why is there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's an you old cannot one. copyright a book title name. Oh. So if we, if we wanted to call our book Gone with the Wind, we could have done it. Really? That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, not too many people know that. Hmm. Anyway, uh, there's a book called Hollywood Godfather. It relates to some Hollywood agent who was hooked up with the mob. That's not ours. Yeah. Where uh, uh, Hollywood Godfather, my uh, uh, my life in the movies and the mob by Gianni and myself. Uh, so you Yeah, can, I mean, it's right on the same page, fortunately, because... Um, and I, I learned that the hard way. I looked it up my first time, and there was there was this old picture. I said, "That ain't me." <laughs> but you can pre-order it. You can pre-order it on on Amazon, fortunately. And there will be an audio book as well. There's correct? an audio book. It's already up too. And which uh, you which you read? Yeah, I did. Which I they they you know they said we're gonna. I said, "Oh no 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 no!" I said, "This is my life. There's nobody gonna tell this story but me." And the audio book. I mean. Like I did almost when, and thank God, Pat jumped in. I was getting choked up talking about uh, Dolores Barone because you know the uh, the stories are so sensitive, and and real life. And I wanted to get that feeling because the last sentence in the book, and Pat agreed with me to support it, is yes, you can. I don't care what your walk of life is, what the color of your skin is. If you believe in something and truly believe in it. Just go out and do it, man. Don't tell anybody you can't. I heard you can't do this, you can't do that. I'm telling you and all the listeners. I don't care what age you are. Here I am looking at it. I'm starting a whole new profession at 76. Mm -hmm. You believe it? Yes, you can. Yeah, I was thinking of becoming a, uh, an astronaut after this. What do you think? <laughs> I think you can do that. All right, thank go right you. Ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm yes, going to look into that. Well, what, Pat, why don't we tell them where we're going next week? That's what I was just going to bring up. Uh, what are we going to be talking about next week? We're going to what's, talk about... What's your suggestion? Well, my suggestion is that because everybody's so intrigued with the mob, let's expound on that and some fictional gangsters, some people... Tough guys? Tough guys. Uh, I knew a lot of them. I knew a guy called Bob Conrad that I really liked out of Chicago. He thought he was a tough guy because he knew Tony Spilatro. And then I have another guy called James Kahn. He thought he was mm. a tough guy because he knew Carmine... Wait, see, that's okay. That's the theme for next week's show: tough guys, real and imagined. There you go. I have, see. That's the writer in me. There you go. <laughs> so to okay. all, all right, of you out guys. there, it's, it's, it's always it's always fun, and uh, we'll we'll see everybody next week. Yeah, please tune in. Tough guys, believe it or not. <laughs> Good night. Bye. Bye. Good, Good night. night, everyone. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. Email Gianni Russo with your questions, comments, and for information regarding his motivational speaking appearances to Gianni at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com. Email Patrick Picciarelli with your questions and comments to Patrick at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com and visit Amazon.com for a listing of books he has written. I'm Megan Horan. I can be emailed at Megan at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com and would enjoy hearing from you. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing what you'd like to hear in the future, 
and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. But most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails. Good night.